Welcome to the Shoreline Community Church Podcast, a community of love, acceptance, forgiveness, and belonging. For more information, be sure to check us out online at shorelinecc.com. Today we are continuing in our series that seems to be going very quick. It's hard to believe that we're almost towards the end of October already, isn't it? But we're in a series called Start Here, and we started with the first week by talking about the heart. The heart is the CEO, executive center, and then we went to the soul. The soul is that part of you that lasts forever, that was made by God for God's purpose, to be dependent on God and to live with him forever. Uh, Then we talked about the mind, and then we went on to the flesh, which is our strength, And this week, we're talking about that part that Jesus said that the second is just like it. And it's that part uh, part that we're going to be spending a lot of time in about loving others. And we get this from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, verses 29 through 31. Can we read this together as we talk about loving others? Let's read this together. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your, and with all your, and with all your... And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There was no other commandment greater than these. And if you've been with us, you know that the first part is we talked about loving the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Incidentally, one of my favorite worship songs ever. Uh, as we dive into that, that talks about the transformation that takes, in, takes place inside of us. It's that part that our heart, mind, soul, and strength, there's that transformative work of God. And then Jesus went on to say, the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself, because this is the result. This is putting the feet to our faith, right? Faith without works is dead, but our faith, our, our faith is measured not by our feelings. Our faith is is measured by our feet when we put it into action. And so we're going to be diving into this today about the result of that transformative work. So like we've been doing, we always dive into, we ask that why question. And the why question here is, why is loving my neighbor so important? Why did Jesus put such an emphasis on loving your neighbor? Is one of the things that identified him. Well, he put such importance on this because loving your neighbor is evidence of God in all of our lives. When we say that we are Christ followers, when we say that we've been transformed, when we say that we are following God with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, and all of our strength, the evidence of that is not going to come by the things that you say because talk is cheap, okay? And it's getting cheaper and cheaper and it's easier. You can say whatever you want and just put it out to the world now. Talk is cheap. But when we look for the evidence, this is what Jesus pointed to. He said, loving your neighbor, this is the evidence. This is the credibility card of Christianity from the very beginning. The credibility comes down to, if you're going to throw it on the table, it's evidence in how you love your neighbor, how you behave in that way. Jesus said this in John 13. He said, by this, by this, everyone will know if you are my disciples, if you love one another. By this. He didn't say by your ability to walk on water, by your ability to do all these things. He said by, your, by the, the very fact that you love one another, this is how they will know that you are my disciples. And in the first John, it goes on one step further and it says that if it says anyone who does not love their brother or their sister cannot love God. It's a big statement, isn't it? If you can't love your brother or your sister, and they're not talking about just, you know, those in your home, they're talking about everybody, right? When they talk about your brother and your sister, they're talking about everybody. If you can't love them, then you can't love God. Wow. Does that blow your mind? How many of you got some brothers and sisters walking around just struggling to love a little bit? 
my brothers and sisters would say that they have brothers and sisters they would struggle to love a little bit. That's a fact of life. But this is important. And I can only love this way because it's so challenging. The only way that we can love in this way, the way that God has called us to, is if we have been transformed. We're all born natural sinners, you know. We had a pastor one time that I dearly love that he would, that he never said this publicly, but when there's a baby, he's like, yep, there's one more sinner born in the world right there. (laughs) He was a dad, he saw it. And if you've been around kids, they're loving, they're cute, they melt your heart. But have you seen some areas of children's lives that need to be shaped at one time? Every time you look in the mirror, you see that, right? There's that aspect of us that the only way that we can love in this way is as we've been transformed by God. And loving your neighbor is the evidence of the transformative work of Christ in us. It's everything that we've been talking about. Everything we've been talking about, heart, mind, soul, and strength, this is the evidence now coming out. And evidence is so important. Evidence is so important. We're called, we talked about the mind, that we study to show ourselves approved, that we look at creation to see who, see who God is and what he is, because a great and powerful God will have great evidence for who he is. I mean, think about how great God is. We, 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 we sang it this morning, how great thou art. We talk about the greatness of God, the power of God, the love of God, the knowledge of God, the wisdom of God, how he is everywhere and he's right here right now. Don't you think that a God like that would leave a big footprint? And he has. He has if we're willing to look. You know, creation testifies to God. Science testifies to God. History and archaeology, they all point to God. And there are amazing books that have been written that dive into that. And I encourage you to dive in and to study those because it's so important that we study to show ourselves approved. That as Paul was saying, that we're always ready to give an answer, that apologia. We need to be ready and we need to know those things are important. But the biggest evidence in this life, in our culture, has been the same from the beginning till it is now. And it is how we love, how those who say that they've surrender their life to Christ, how those who say that they're being transformed by the power of God, it's in how they love their neighbor. This is the biggest evidence of a fully devoted follower of Christ. Jesus was very clear on this. He was very plain on this. And in 2 Corinthians 5.20, it says, so we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. God is making his appeal through me, through your life, through everyone's life. This is how God has chosen almighty God, all powerful God. He could do it any way he wanted, and he chose you. He chose me. And to phrase this in a negative way, that so many times the greatest deterrent to people seeing God is often by those who pretend to know God, but there's no evidence of a transformed life. Isn't that true? I mean, how many times have you talked to somebody that they struggle to know God, and it often comes back to somebody who said they know God, who said that they were transformed, but the evidence was not there. Not looking for perfection. And a lot of times we think, well, nobody's perfect, and we're not. We're all in a process. But I think we all even carry stories of in our life, how we've had to overcome, how we've been treated. How many of you have had to overcome how you've been treated in your life by other Christians? I have. We've all been there. And so many of us, we've been the ones doing it. Have you ever done anything you've not been proud of? You said, Jesus, forgive me. That was not a good representation of you. I, I pray that prayer. That, that's me, okay? So if you need a scapegoat, here I am. <laughs> we all fall into these things because we're all works in progress. 
But that's also why the Bible issues such strong warnings and such strong judgments against those who are false teachers or lead others astray, even going as far as to say if you lead a child astray, it would be better that a rock be put around your neck and you're thrown into the sea than to lead one of these small ones astray. This is very serious. In Ephesians 5, it lays out the importance of living a life that reflects Christ. And I think we all know that loving our neighbors is so important because we place a high level of value and importance on our friends. Our friends are important to us. Our friends are so important to us. I mean, teachers see this all the time in school, that so many times that the decisions that students make, the decisions that a child makes, and even adults, the decisions that adults make are so influenced by the friends that they make. When you talk to Chi Alpha leaders, and, and I believe this was Dave Giles, Dave, good to see you guys here today. They were talking about how important that first year is, the friends that they make, the, the decisions, who you're going to associate, because the friendships that you make in that first year in university often set the trajectory for the rest of your college career. It is so important. I mean, how, so how much more important is it for us as Christ followers to love our neighbor? As a society, we've lost trust in leaders in every other sphere, haven't we? Many will say that, you know, I don't trust politicians anymore because they're just after my vote. They're not out for me. They just have their own agenda. Many will often say that even with news organizations, we don't trust news organizations anymore because they're backed by advertising companies and you're just trying to get me to click on it. They're only after me as a consumer. It's all about money to them. That's why as it relates to social media, you'll see so many people, they'll base their information, they'll base what they trust based on a friend that they trust because they've lost trust in everything else. So many of us, have you lost any trust during the last two years in things around you? And so many times you go to friends, you go, man, who are you looking to? How are you, where are you getting your information? Because I can't trust anybody right now. You go to a friend that you trust. You go to somebody that you're like, you know what? I, I know that they're out for my good. I know that they're with me. They're here. We're looking for those true friends, what people often call those foxhole f- friends, that when you're down and out, when you're there, they're the people that show up in your life and say, how you doing? I'm here with you. That's what a good friend does. That's why it's so hurtful when you lose friends. And during the season, so many people, they've lost friends, and you mourn that. But it hurts, doesn't it? It hurts. And it hurts because friends are important. I'm not going to sing Natalie Grant's song, okay? Don't worry. But a friend's a friend forever. I did. How many of you are old enough to know that song? Right? Here we go. You're, you're my friends. And see, the title friend, as it relates to a friend, this was even the way that Jesus described himself to us. This is the difference, the mark. What did Jesus say? He said, I now call you friends. I now call you friends. It shows a level of commitment. It's a word that communicates trust. It's a a word that communicates that relationship that no matter what, they're there for me. You're here for me. And as I was saying earlier, since faith without works is dead, if we are to be alive in God, we must We must love our neighbor. We must love our neighbor. So, seeing that 
loving your neighbor and having friendships are so important. The follow-up question to that is, well, who is my neighbor? Then who is my neighbor? Who you, when you say, Jesus, that the evidence of your transformative work in my life is how I love my neighbors, then who is my neighbor? And this was actually the follow-up question that the scribe asked. What we read earlier was the response to a scribe asking you, Jesus, what is the most important question? What is the most important? And he said, this is the most important, and his second is like it, to love your neighbor. The scribe followed up and said, well, then who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? See, the scribe, he recognized what Jesus was saying. He recognized in that moment that Jesus was saying that your neighbor is the evidence of God in your life. And the question that he was asking, it was very intentional. It wasn't just, it wasn't an off-the-cuff question. It was an intentional question that referenced how the scribes define neighbor. Because if you're struggling with something, right, or, or if you've been caught doing something, all you need to do is just redefine it, and then you're okay. If I can redefine what it means, then I can do it. And we've seen that a lot, haven't we? I'm just going to redefine what the nature of it is, and then I'm okay. And as it relates to neighbor, the scribes, they define neighbor as fellow Jews, people like them. So when it came down to loving your neighbor as yourself, well, if you define neighbor as just people like me, hey, no problem. No problem. I can love people like me. I can love people who believe like me. I can love people who watch the same news source as me. I can watch people who cheer for the right hockey team like me, which is the Seattle Kraken. They're doing well, by the way. You know, I can, or if, if it's football, you know, I can, I, I can love people who cheer for the Seahawks, which is the greatest football team, or whatever it may be. Because those people, they're like me. So we redefine it and say, yeah, I'll love those people. No problem. I can do that. See, defining it this way, it meant they only needed to love them. And that meant they, that these were people that they follow the same set of rules as I do. And they're stunned by the same judgment in their life. So when things go off, I can see it and I can bring it back in check because there's a power there to do it. But before we judge them too quickly, our society, we fall into the same trap, don't we? Because it's so much easier to do that. And a lot of times we can kind of point other people, but I think this is the temptation for all of us to do that, right? They go, oh, I'm going to defriend them because... They're a Cowboys fan. No offense, Matthew. <laughs> right? No. We look at how Jesus defines neighbor. How does Jesus define neighbor? Everyone. Everyone. Everybody. It's the person sitting next to you in church. It's the person sitting next to you on the bus. It's even the person trolling you on social media. Everybody. It's the politicians you agree with, the politicians you disagree with. It's the boss who's for you and the boss who's against you. He defined it as everybody. He's saying, because when we decide to follow Jesus, we're committing to loving whoever is there, whether it's friend, family, or enemies. And a lot of times, they all switch teams in, our, in how we count it, Right? Because even, you, you have to admit that there's times that there's people that they may watch the same news watch this, and do cheer for the same teams and believe just like you, but have you ever had people in that category that they've been difficult to love? Have you ever been in the same family and family members been tough to love? Have you ever been tough to love in your family? <laughs> I have. We all have. See, loving your neighbor with this understanding, it's very difficult it's very, very difficult. And just for a moment here this morning, I'm going to try to go through this very quickly, but as we talk about loving our neighbor and we talk about it specifically extending it beyond some of this, 
some of the boundaries that we place up. America has changed, to state the obvious. America has changed. You know, when I first became a pastor, I first became a pastor but way back in the 90s. And when I became a pastor back in the 90s, even then, pastors were often revered as intelligent people, people who cared for you. You know, they, they were thought well of. They were pastors in general were thought to be compassionate, educated, and someone to go to when you needed help. I mean, I can remember being on staff at, at, at a small church and even in larger churches. And if there was a tragedy or a situation that came up in a family's life, even if they never went to the church, even if they never went to church in their lifetime, they ran to, to their closest church. That happened here. Shoreline Community Church has ministered to so many people and has introduced the gospel to so many people just by the means of when they were hit rock bottom, they knew they could run to a church. They knew if they could find a pastor, that pastor would help them, the pastor would be there. And in the middle of that, they find Jesus through loving their neighbor. That's how our culture thought of pastors and churches. Not everybody, but a lot more. But that's not the way it is today. Pastor John Mark Homer, he's a young pastor down in Portland, great author, great pastor. And in his book, Live No Lies, he lays out very clearly a lot of these changes, and he calls them three tectonic shifts that have happened in Western culture. And I bring this up purely just to make us aware, as you may already be, that our culture has changed. And part of it, Jesus, he knew his culture. He contextualized his culture and how he spoke. He never adapted the, cult, the language. He never changed the gospel. But he spoke to his culture. But part of speaking to our culture is we need to know the culture that is around us and be very clear about it. So the, the three key shifts that John Mark Homer lays out is, first of all, the first is from majority to minority. He writes, while 49% of millennials and 65% of American adults identify still as Christian in national surveys, an in-depth analysis by the Barna Group, that's a Christian think tank, they put the number of young, young adults who are what, he, what they define as resilient disciples at 10%. So out of that group, only 10% were defined as resilient disciples. That's a nationwide number, and he even identifies that in secular cities like Seattle and Portland, that number is probably much lower. So what does Barna mean when they talk about a resilient Christian? Here's how they define, how, here's how they got it to that just 10% of that number is what they define as a resilient Christian. So by their survey, a resilient Christian is somebody who attends church at least once a month, and they engage with their church more than just attending a worship service. A resilient Christian trusts the authority of the Bible. A resilient Christian is committed to Jesus personally, and they affirm that Jesus was crucified and raised from the dead to conquer sin and death. And then a resilient Christian, they express the desire to transform the broader society as an outcome of their faith. So that's now what we call a resilient Christian. But do you know what that sounds like to me? It's what Jesus called Christian. That's what Jesus just called Christian. So what we're now calling resilient, and Barna's an amazing group, and they would echo the same thing, that what we're calling now resilient is what Jesus was talking about. And when people looked at somebody and said, they're like Christ, that's what Christian means, they're like Christ. Those were the basic things that they held on to. I know that the Bible was still being written, but they held true to the things of God. Being a Christian means that you are Christ-like, and these are the basic, uh, basic bedrock things of what that means. And let me be clear, I think it's important to lay out that there is only one type of Christian, and that's resilient. 
there's not multiple types of Christians. All are welcome. And there's times that we fail. There's times we have all these things we bring it to Jesus. But there's only one type of Christian that Jesus said. He even said that, that the path of destruction is wide. But the way of life that leads to heaven, that leads to Jesus, it's a narrow path because it is a resilient path because the only way that you will make it is if you're resilient. If we don't gather together regularly, we're not going to make it. Studies show that. If we don't believe in the authority of the Bible, we are not going to make it. If we're not encouraging one another, if we are not committed to the aspect that, that Jesus, he came, he was the son of God, fully God, fully man. He came and he laid his life down and he died for all of us. And then he rose again, all powerful. And the evidence for this is overwhelming. But unless we count the cost and we walk in this way, there's no way that we're going to make it. People walked away from sad from Jesus all the time because he kept bringing them back. Yes, I love you. Yes, there's grace. Yes, there's ways to pull us in. And we'll walk this out and there's discipleship and there's a process of growth in our life. But if we are not committed to these very basic things, we will fall away. That's why Christians are now what sociologists call a cognitive minority. If, if you're a, a Christian today, as we talk about this tectonic shift, you're what sociologists call a, a cognitive minority, meaning that as followers of Jesus, our worldview and our value system and practices and social norms are increasingly at sharp odds with those of our host culture. We face constant pressure from both the left and the right to assimilate and follow the crowd. So that's the first shift from majority to minority. The second is our place in culture is shifting from a place of honor to a place of shame. Historically, Christians were at the center of society, building hospitals. A lot of the Ivy League schools that are founded in America today were founded by Christians that were in their pursuit of God, the pursuit of Christ, founded these amazing universities. Christians were at the center of government, at the center of schools, at the center of science, at the center of the arts. The church, by and large, held a place of honor in a wider culture. But in his book, John Mark Homer, he writes this. He says, most people today want nothing to do with faith in the public square. The church is, is seen as a part of the problem, not the solution. He said, what's more, with the radical moral reversal around human sexuality, gender, and the life of the unborn, we now have the moral low ground in many people's eyes. Jesus' vision of human sexuality is perceived as immoral, by a large swath of the population. That's true, isn't it? And then the, the third shift is the tectonic shift from widespread tolerance now to a rising hostility. So we've gone from majority to minority. We've gone from a place of honor now to a place of shame. And now this third shift is from widespread tolerance. Well, we're willing to tolerate you to where now we're there's rising hostility because we see you as a threat. See, Christians have moved from being respective, as being respected, to being thought then as weird because of the views on sex and the Bible and God, to now being thought of as dangerous. I've, I've heard this, I've seen this, I've experienced these thoughts towards me. Many now view Christianity as, as a threat to secularism's alternative vision for human flourishing, which is through God. As a result, this has caused many Christians to feel like an exile in their neighborhood and in public venues such as school and work. And this is something as well that I've had so many people talk to me that because of their faith in Christ, that when they're at work, when they're at school, wherever they find themselves, they're almost, they, they know that by sharing their faith that they're risking not just being made fun of, 
but they're risking potentially losing their job, losing promotion, losing all their friends. I've talked to students who've lost all their friends in their circle. And not because they're saying you're this or trying to enforce a moral worldview, but just by saying I believe in God. And I'm not going to do this, you know. I'm not going to stop you from what you're doing. I'm just saying I'm not going to do this or I'm not going to do that or I'm not going to say that or I'm not going to engage in that. It's, not, it's no longer tolerated. It's now seen as a threat. And I believe that, that it used to be something that was just relegated to the workplace, but now it's being turned up in our schools, in our neighborhoods. And it breaks my heart. Now, why did I share all this with you? Am I trying to scare you today? <laughs> Halloween's coming. No. I'm not. <laughs> Pastor Dwayne's scary. Where's the encouragement? Where's the love? Where's the laugh? No, I share this with you not to scare you because we should not be scared. I share this with you because you need to know the culture that we're in. You need to know what's happening. We need to open our eyes to it. We need to see it. Jesus always dealt with truth and reality. I'm here to tell you, though, that the greater the persecution comes, the greater that the gospel flourishes. And here's why. It flourishes because now it is no longer to our advantage in this culture to be Christian. It is no longer to our advantage. You're not going to get a special deal. You're not going to be thought of as being, boy, that's great. What a moral, what a clean life. It is no longer to our advantage. And when all these social advantages, when all the cultural advantages are stripped away, the only advantage of giving your life to Christ is God and God alone. And your only strength comes now from God and God alone. Your only identity now comes from God and God alone. Your only power, the wisdom, everything that you need only comes from God and God alone. And when all you have in your life is God, that's when the gospel flourishes because now it's not being hidden by my life, by my biases, by anything. But people see God and their life is transformed and the gospel flourishes and takes off in the middle of this. China tried to kill Christianity and they couldn't. The more they pressed down, the more the church rose up. The more house churches went out. Were there costs to it? Yes. Did people lose their jobs? Yes. Did people lose family? Yes. Were people arrested? Yes. But in the middle of it, God was there and God rose up in the middle of it and they couldn't silence it. They couldn't squelch it because there's nowhere to hide. There's nowhere to hide in my life. And I'm not going to, appear, going to compare my persecution to what the Chinese church has compared because it's not even comparable. And a lot of times what we call persecution, it's not persecution, it's just an inconvenience. I've been inconvenienced now because I've got to wear a mask to get my original source beans from Herkimer. <laughs> That's not persecution. <laughs> right? It's not. It's not persecution for us to come together and wear a mask today. It's not. And I, re and I realize that I'm probably going to get some bad emails because of that, and we may lose other people, but it's not. That's not persecution. That's not where the attack is coming from. That's a red herring out there to distract us. That the body of Christ, we've been divided by such silly things. We've been attacked over so silly things where in this time, we should have come together, wear a mask, ask the church in China. You can worship publicly. You can do whatever you want. Just wear a mask. <laughs> no problem. We need to come together as the body of Christ. Lay it all down for the body of Christ. Is persecution coming? Absolutely. Is the government for us? They're not for us. Are there things out there that are evil? Absolutely. But we need to come together and to not be caught off guard by such simple things. Do I like wearing a mask? No, I don't. It hides my beard. 
I don't like wearing a mask. But if that's all it takes to make somebody feel comfortable, to come in and to see that so they can hear the gospel. Now, if they start telling me that I, I had one set of rules that was different from the entertainment venues, then I would say, yeah, there's something going out yet. But when I talk to venues around, they're experiencing the same thing. They're experiencing the same thing. We need to be very clear because persecution, the Bible tells us, it's coming. It's coming, but this is not it. And if we are going to make it, if we're going to survive, we need to come together. And I'll say this too, that in our community, in this area, in King County, when I talk to non-Christians, one of the biggest things that detracts them is when they've seen church leaders stand up and be not willing to take the appropriate safety measures for their community. I can't tell you how many people that I've said that that's been, they're like, why is the church responding in this way? I'll move on. I'm sorry. Well, I'm not really sorry. But we need to come together because I'm, I'm telling you, things are happening and the body of Christ needs to be together. Let's not be divided over a mass. None of that's in my notes. But I'm grieved. I'm so grieved. I'm grieved because we're in a culture that is dying. It is dead spiritually. We need to be revealing Christ. The only way they're going to see it is in us, and they're going to see it in how we treat each other, how we talk to each other, how we love one another. Because, yeah, persecution's coming. Jesus was clear on that. He told his disciples that, and like, surely not. It always does. But we need to be careful what we call persecution because we misrepresent who God is when we behave in any other ways. But we are not to be scared. We need to allow the sifting to happen and take place. Because when we are sifted, we come out as pure gold. And it's been hard. Again, I'm not comparing my persecution to anybody else or the things I've walked through to anybody else because I've suffered so little. I know missionaries who are persecuted. And I weep for them. They have a depth that is far beyond many of ours. When we behave in this way, you want to see the power of God in your life? You want to see the power of God when you walk out those doors? You want to see the power of God on the bus, in the workplace, in your home, online? It's when we lay our lives down. That's what Jesus did. This is when we experience the reality. When we, when we walk in this and we see Jesus in this, we need to be more committed than ever to loving God and loving our neighbor. This is the transformative work of God in our lives. Amen. Amen. So what does loving your neighbor look like? What does this look like? Again, this was a follow-up question that was asked. <laughs> right? Jesus is the greatest. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor. And then Jesus followed up that question of who is your neighbor but he told the scribe and everyone that was listening about the Good Samaritan. Have you heard that story before? Have you heard about the Good Samaritan? <laughs> In Luke 10, it says, it says, a Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of all his clothes, they beat him up, and they left him half dead beside the road. By chance, 
a priest came along. But when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and he passed him by. Then a temple assistant walked over and he looked at the man lying there. But he too also passed to the other side. And then in 33, it says, then a despised Samaritan came along. Now bear in mind, Jesus is saying this to a Jewish scribe. He said a despised Samaritan came along. See, Samaritans were not liked by the Jews. They were half Greek, they were half Jew. They didn't follow all the rules that the Jews said they need to follow. They even built their own temples. They did a lot of things that they didn't like. They were despised. Jesus intentionally placed this person as the hero of the story. So what did he do? This despised Samaritan, when he saw the man, he felt compassion. He felt compassion on the man. He went over and he soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. And then he put the man on his own donkey. And he took him to an inn where he could take care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If his bills run higher, I'll pay you next time I'm here. Then Jesus said, now which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man? <laughs> Who was the neighbor in the story? And the man replied, the one who showed mercy. The one who showed mercy, and then Jesus said, yes. Now go and do the same. And just very quickly, I know I've gone long this morning. But Jesus, he, he outlined in this, in this very brief parable three ways that we respond to things that happen in our culture. And this is important for us today because as we talked about already, as a result of the growing hostility towards Christianity, these are the ways that so many Christians have responded. And if you're like me, there's probably times that I've done all three of these. I've played every role in this story. The first response, retreat. <laughs> right? When the priest saw it, pulled away from culture. In other words, I can simplify the command to love my neighbor by just changing who my neighbors are. I'm going to walk away. I'm going to leave. I'm going to just walk away from it. Now, this is a survival mentality, and God has not called us to survive. He's called us to thrive, but that's coming here a little bit. But when we hit into the survival mentality, this is a head for the hills. Go to the other side. Don't even go near it. It's too hard. It's too much work, and it's too risky. And if I'm in it, I'll feel like I need to do something about it, and that's just too much right now. Now, I want to put a note here. This does not mean that I have to be in a hostile environment 24-7. Jesus walked away to be by himself. If you find yourself in a hostile environment 24-7, you won't make it. We need to come together. We need to encourage one another. And there's parts of our, of our community that we need to be protective of. The Bible is clear. Yeah, gather together, encourage each other. But we especially need to be, be protective as it relates to our children because the commands are clear. We need to be careful to teach our children in the ways that God has called us. And Jesus is also very clear on this. So when we're talking about retreat, I'm not talking about coming together. I'm not talking about having a Sunday school or children's ministry or youth ministries because our students need it because they're being indoctrinated with so much stuff that we as the body of Christ, we as a beachhead in this community, we need to be clear in providing a safe home 
harbor a safe place where people can come and learn about Jesus and say, you know what? It can seem like nobody agrees with Jesus. It can seem like everyone's against you, but not here. We love you, and this is a safe place. If we are going to scatter well, we need to gather well. And a lot of times, the scattering is so off because we've not gathered together well. We need the body of Christ. I need to hear you singing around me. I need to hear you praying. And not just a pitch for a prayer service, but when we pray, I need you to come together and pray because you can pray for me. You can pray for this community that we can just come together and encourage one another. We need it. We need it. So yes, there are those that would retreat and just go away and head for the hills. But when we are here as this beachhead, which Shoreline Community Church is, it's not the only one, but it's the one that God has called us to, that sometimes winning means that we're going to hold the line. We're not going to retreat from this, but we're going to be at this line that God has called us to be. But to do that, we need to come together. We need to encourage one another. We need to be giving generously. We need to be praying, God, what would you have us do? And we need to be loving each other in that way. Again, not in my notes. See, spiritual health is essential to being salt and light in our world. You can only give what you have. So yes, we're not called to retreat but we need to disciple and raise up and provide a safe place. That's why I'm so thankful for Pastor Tiffany leading the youth. I'm so thankful for Natalie downstairs that she stepped up and said, we're going to love these kids, we're going to love these families, we're going to pour into them. They're going to feel welcome here. Amen. That was the first one. The second one, second response to all this is ignore. This is the person that says, I'm not willing to walk around it, you know, it's too far. The fastest route is to go through it, but I can't deal with this right now, so I ignore it and I leave it for somebody else will take care of that. That's a ministry for somebody else to take care of. Again, the problem with this is that faith without works is dead. Faith is measured by our feet, not our feelings. Amen? Amen. That's Dr. Tony Evans. Anybody know Dr. Tony Evans? Urban Alternative, Dallas Fort Worth. Been listening to him a lot. <laughs> Brilliant man. Passionate man. Love them. Priscilla Shire. Anybody know Priscilla Shire? That, that's his daughter. You're like, oh. <laughs> She's a powerhouse. See, we're called to be salt and light, and Jesus compared this to salt that has lost its flavor. It ceases to be salt and is no longer good for anything. Jesus said, it's, it's only good now is to be thrown out and trampled. We can't ignore. Ignoring takes away our saltiness because it's meant to be applied. That's why the hero of this story is engage. Engage. This is a person that realizes that seeing this need is no accident. If you see it, guess who brought it to your attention? God did. <laughs> he brought it to your attention for a purpose, for a reason. It's a recognition that God has brought me to this moment in this time, and God's going to use me to bring healing to this situation. Again, think about this. Jesus, when he talked about that this was the good Samaritan, this scribe did not think any Samaritans were good. Nobody was good. They were hated by the Jews. But look at how the good Samaritan engaged. This is the example that Jesus gave. How did he engage? First of all, he saw. He saw. He, he chose not to ignore, and he looked, and then he had compassion. 
We cannot ignore things. We cannot ignore the world that we're in. We, we cannot ignore the situation that we're in. But it's important to recognize that in looking deeply, it caused compassion to come up. Loving our neighbors should affect us. Our first response shouldn't be anger because we're inconvenienced. Our first response should be compassion. Is your heart broken for the city? Is your heart broken for the things that you see on social media? Yeah, there's times that anger rises up and Jesus got angry in the temple. Most of his anger was reserved for religious leaders because he's like, you should know better. This is not God. But when he saw a community broken, when he saw compassion doesn't mean that we're compromising the gospel. It means that we're moved because we see that somebody is broken. And I'm telling you, so many people in our culture that you, you may look and you may be angered by it, you may be confused by it, you may be hurt by it because they hurt you and they hurt your family members. Behind it, almost every time, and I would say every time that I've talked to somebody, every time that someone's opened up their life who was very caustic to the gospel, who was angry at me, that when it came down to it and they opened their, their heart, there was a hurt behind it. And this is what the Good Samaritan did. He had compassion, and he stopped. He threw off his schedule. I don't know what the schedule was. I don't know what that meant, but I, but I know that so many times we're in such a hurry to get to places. It required that the Good Samaritan had to change his schedule. His calendar was affected because this was now a divine opportunity. He recognized that this is what God has brought me here for, that when I help somebody, I'm now doing what God's called me to do. I may have something different on my calendar, and I thought that was good, and do a calendar, be organized, don't be disorganized, okay? That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is that when God puts something in your heart and he brings something there and there's an opportunity now is the time now it is ready that's why convoy of hope says in so many places that in, in so many broken parts of the world the first person to show up with a bowl of rice wins why is that because you show that you care you've put some works to the faith you put some feet to your faith and you're saying yes i'm here for jesus but you're hungry let me feed you you need some clothing let me give you some clothing you need some education so there be some lift let me bring some ed education let me let me be a part of it let me go get some friends who can help let me get some missionaries who can help let me go talk to my pastor let me go talk to our church let's, let's engage in this way we're called to step in and it's amazing how the good Samaritan, the priest wasn't willing to do it, the temple assistant wasn't willing to do it, but this good Samaritan was willing to step in. And he poured it in. And I also want to point out to this that this meant that he was willing to stop in the same place that this man was burglarized and beat. This meant that he was putting now himself in the place where now he could be beaten. He comes along on a donkey. He's got some money. We know that he has all of our own. He has all that stuff. Do you, do you think that would be attractive to a bandit? This was a strategic place where bandits would hide out so that they could rob them. And by stopping, a lot, and, and when you look at it, I mean, you can't help but think that maybe the priest and the assistant, they kept going because they're like, I don't want to get robbed here. I don't want to be in this place. This is a bad part of town. This is a bad part. I need to get out of here. That sometimes when we stop, it means that we're putting our own life's at risk. We're putting our own reputation at risk. We're putting ourselves in the same place. Isn't that what Jesus did? Isn't that what Jesus did? If Jesus was just worried about his name, he wouldn't let, let me be called a Christian. There's times I've represented him well, and sometimes I've misrepresented him well. But he stepped into my situation. If we are to help a broken city that we are in, we need to be willing, by the power of God, not your own agenda, because if you go off on your own agenda, your own ways, and you're not filled with the power of Christ, you will, not just be a, you, you, you will no longer be a part of the healing, but you'll be a part of the problem, which so many have done. Because they've not been filled with the power of God. 
They've acted on their own agenda, and they become proud in the moment. Look what I'm doing. I'm helping. What are you doing? They became judgmental. No, it's filled with that humility, that power of God saying, God, what would you have me do? It's not about me in this moment. But it means oftentimes that we need to be willing to come in. See, he was willing to share the pain, and this included sharing the danger. This is the culture that we are in. He paid the price. He took his own money. He gave him his transportation. He gave him his shelter, and he paid for his recovery. And I want you to see this. Discipleship will always cost us. Discipleship will always, always, always cost us. That's what worship is. Worship is laying down, kneeling down, saying, God, I give you everything. I'm lowering myself. Worship is that literally bowing down and saying, I must decrease so that you must increase. It's not about me. It's not about people looking at me and saying, man, look what Pastor Dwayne's doing over there. It will always cost us. Because this is what Jesus did. What would Jesus do? This is what Jesus did. He saw our need. He had compassion. He stopped for us. He stepped in and he paid the price. He was willing to be called a friend of sinners. Think about that. A friend of sinners. They called him a drunkard, even though he was not drunk. All these lies came out because he had compassion and he stopped. This is what Jesus meant by love your neighbor. And that word love is the worship team comes. He didn't use the word eros, right? That's a that's a pleasing myself. That's an erotic love. That's where I'm only engaged in this as it benefits me. That's not love. That's a self-seeking love. And that's often the love that is used by our culture. Just do what feels good. Do what helps yourself. Do what pleases you. We talked about that when we talked about the flesh. If all we do is just try to please the flesh, and sometimes we can confuse what part of us is, is leading us. When we attach ourselves to the flesh, we die because the flesh dies. It wasn't even this phileo, this friendship love. It's not being led by our friendships. It's not just being led by all those feelings that are around us, only engaging when they are my friends or people who are not hostile towards me or rejecting me, and I get, I get it because we're exhausted. Are you exhausted? Sometimes you get so exhausted, and you're like, God, I can't have one more conversation like that. I can't have one more person misrepresent me. I can't have one more person say this. But if it's just that phileo, that friendship kind of love, we'll isolate ourselves. The word that's used here for your love, your neighbor, it's an agape, agape love. It's that sacrificial. It's that laying it down. It's that life of giving it all. See, when we worship God, that, that's why it, it was prefaced with, here always the Lord your God is one. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And that's going to cost you because it's all. Because when you hand that over, do you know what's left? Nothing. You've laid it all down. You've laid everything down. That's the only sacrifice that God will take because there's a death involved. We die to ourselves. And sometimes we give things up and we lay it over and it's like, it's like God isn't accepting it. And like, God, why aren't you accepting it? It's like, well, there, there's no cost involved. There was no, you didn't die to yourself. 
That was the criticism that was made against Cain. Abel brought a sacrifice that cost him something. There was a death involved. Cain, he didn't bring the sacrifice that God was asking for. And what did God say to Cain? He said, sin is crouching at your door, and it's because of your lack of worship. It's your lack of worship, that surrendering of a life. See, we walk in the ways of Jesus as it relates to living our neighbor because Jesus, Jesus gave his life for us and laid it down before we knew him, before we followed him, before we accepted him while we were still in sin, missing the mark, rejecting him. That's when Jesus saw, had compassion, stopped, and gave his life for us. You want the power of God in your life? This is it. It's everything. It's everything, amen? Can we stand together and just allow the Holy Spirit to move in all of our lives? This is, a, this is between you and Jesus right now. Holy Spirit, have your way. Holy Spirit, have your way in us. Have your way in us individually transform us. God, have your way in our church, Shoreline Community Church, that you would transform us. Lord, people have been praying for decades that our community would be prepared and fully surrendered for such a moment as this, for such a time as this, in this community, in this place. Before time began, you looked forward, your word says, and you had a purpose for us. And here we stand. Just a couple of questions as the worship team leads us. And as we allow the Spirit of God to speak to us. And when the Lord speaks, there's often confession involved, saying, Lord, forgive me and help me, transform me. But I want you to really think and allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you. Are there any neighbors that I'm ignoring? So Jesus' definition of neighbors, that's everybody, right? Are there any that we're ignoring for various reasons? All the reasons we talked about. Scared? Too busy? I'd like for you to identify them. If, if, if you have them now, just maybe you want to write it down or put a note. You can take, one of the, you can take something in front of you and write it down. Or if you have a, a way of just writing it in your notes on your phone. I want to encourage you to write down, who are the neighbors that you're ignoring? Maybe as a group. Could be a group, could be an individual. And why? Ask the Lord, why am I, why am I ignoring them? Is it, am I scared? Is it, get to the motive. And allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you, saying right now in this moment today, am I retreating? Am I ignoring? Or am I engaging? And then the question of every disciple is, what steps do I need to take in order to love my neighbor? We've identified who they are. We're asking the Holy Spirit to speak to us, but why? Why am I ignoring? What's the obstacle that's in the way? And you may know it already. And then ask the Lord, say, Lord, speak to me. Your servant is listening. What do I need to do this week? What steps do I need to take? Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. Is that your prayer to say it with me? Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. We want to be used by you, O oh God. We want to be used by you, O oh Jesus. Speak to our hearts. Convict us, O oh God, of where we're missing it. 
so we can love our neighbor the way that you have called us to in your name. Now just begin to pray for Shoreline, for Mount Lake Terrace, for Seattle. Lord, all the earth is right here. Right here, Lord. Lord, I pray that all Shoreline would shout your praise. Lord, I pray that all Seattle would shout your praise, that every knee would bow and every heart confess that you are Lord. Lord, I pray for Mount Lake Terrace. Lord, I pray for Lake City. I pray for all these surrounding areas. I pray for the world. I pray for America. I pray for Canada. I pray for Mexico. I pray for Central America, Latin America, South America. Lord, for Africa, for Europe. Lord, for every place, every part in Asia, oh God, Australia, every part. Even the scientists in the North Pole and the South Pole, God, may they come to know you. And God, may it be as we rise up as the body of Christ to say, Lord, speak through me. Help me to love my neighbor wherever I am. Transform my heart, my life, that I would not pull away. I would not retreat in fear. Lord, I would not ignore in fear or bias. But God, that I would fully engage and step in. Oh, God. Every decision, there are no small decisions. There there are moments for the miracle of God to show up as we say yes to right here, right now. God, may we decrease so that you would increase. May we die to ourselves so that we can be alive in Christ. To live as Christ, to die as gain. Lord, so many times, Lord, we, we, we just put half a sacrifice on the altar and you say, I'd rather you shut the doors. Don't bring it to me. I'd rather you shut the doors than just to bring me half a heart. Lord, let our doors be wide open as we reflect a community that sacrifices totally, completely to you in everything that we do. In everything that we do, oh God. And that begins by looking at ourselves. You deal with us individually. Deal with us, oh Lord. Remove our blindness. Remove our fear as we look to you. We fix our eyes on Jesus, the author. Write your story and the finisher, because every good work you start, you finish. In your name, <sighs> Amen. Are your glasses fogged up like mine? <laughs> amen. Thank you for staying. <laughs> I want you to know I'm excited as I share these things. I'm excited. You know, next week we're going to keep talking about loving our neighbor, but we're going to get real practical. We're going to get real practical. Come next week. Invite your neighbors. Invite your friends. Invite those around you. You know, Satan is well represented. People are not scared to talk about anything else. We need to not be afraid to talk about Jesus, to do it in loving ways. We have the gift of life and to say, would you come join me? Let's come together. Let's get together for coffee. Let's get together for tea. Whatever it means, we need to be bold in the invitation and we need to be sacrificing and laying down our lives so that they will see. Amen? I love you. I'll make sure that you're here next week. Parents of students and children, we have a luncheon for you down in Southern Hall. Uh, Pastor Tiffany's going to be down there. Natalie's going to be down there. And we're just going to be talking about some very important things. Make sure that you're a part of that. And uh, hope to see you Saturday as we get this place ready. I'm praying for a mighty outpouring of the Spirit of God in this place. So let's get the grounds ready. (laughs) 
Let everything that we do for his glory. Amen. I love you all. Here's our benediction. Let's say this. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace.